And as we start, let me remind you of what's happening here in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus just passed through Jericho where he has healed two blind men and then he brought salvation to the chief tax collector known as Zacchaeus. And these were startling events uh, caused, that caused the already large crowd that was following Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration uh, to grow even more, that more and more people began to follow Jesus. And so he leaves Jericho and begins his difficult ascent to Jerusalem in the midst of this large gathering of very expectant Jews. There was more than likely a buzzing going on. There there was this hope that Jesus would come to Jerusalem, that he would uh, display his messianic power, judge Israel's enemies, that he would establish his kingdom that has been promised to them in the Old Testament. And as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem and into Jerusalem, there's three events here that we're going to cover this morning. The first one is this, is that Jesus is crowned. He's making his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and at last he's about to enter the holy city, and before he enters, he has to pass over the Mount of Olives, and he tells his disciples in verse 30, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. And the disciples do just that. They, verse 32 says, those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Verse 35, they bring the colt to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they help Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven in, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. What is happening here is something that is of extremely significant value. Now, oftentimes we read about the triumphal entry and we kind of just read through it and move on to the next section. But there is extremely, something extremely significant taking place. But what is happen or happening or why is it significant? Well, in Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet Zechariah writes this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy speaks of the day when the king of the Jews, this Messiah, would enter into the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of God. And how would he enter? On the back of a donkey, humble and riding on a donkey. And what do we find Jesus doing here? Exactly that, riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Now, why does that matter? Why is that significant? Well, many of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled they fulfilled because that's just what, how God had set it up. He was born in a certain place uh, to a virgin woman, uh, born to a certain tribe and family lineage. But in this situation, Jesus goes out of his way to make sure a particular prophecy in Zechariah is fulfilled. This prophecy that the king of the Jews would ride into the city of Jerusalem humble on the back of a donkey. That what Jesus is doing here is he is coming out into the public. He's making a self-conscious move and decision to reveal his identity, to show to the nation of Israel, to proclaim to the nation of Israel who he is, that he is, in fact, the Messiah that they have been waiting for. He is the king that they have been longing for, that has been promised to them in the Old Testament. They would come through the line of David who would rule and reign. 
And so he sends his disciples to get this carefully designated donkey in which he would triumphantly enter into the city of Jerusalem. And what happens as he gets on the donkey and begins to ride into the city? Well, the people of God, the people who are around him begin to praise him. They affirm him as king. It says that they take their clothes, they put it on the colt, they help Jesus get on it. As he's going, the people are spreading their clothes on the road. And then he came down near the path they're down to the path of the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully. This loud voice, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. This was a festive occasion, a time of excitement and celebration. For this was the moment the Jewish people had waited for, they had longed for for centuries, the public reception of the long-awaited Messiah. They were so excited, they took their clothes off in celebration, lying their garments in front of the donkey that was carrying the king of kings into the city of God. This was a real act of homage or honor. As one commentator put it, the crowd extravagantly honored Jesus and praised God for sending this king unto Jerusalem, that he enters into the city and people are waving the palm branches and crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that they are acknowledging the kingship of Jesus is designated by God himself. They're acknowledging that God has brought them their king and they praise him, they celebrate him, they crown him as king. And at this time, there were somewhere probably around 100,000 people who were at, to quote, the triumphal entry of Jesus, with millions more in the city of Jerusalem and around Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And so you have these people, the disciples, praising Jesus, recognizing that God has sent Jesus to be their king, blessing God, celebrating God announcing that Jesus is the king, and then you have the Pharisees in verse 39, where the Pharisees were in the crowd, and some of them from the crowd told Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees' reaction was not excitement, was not celebration, but it was anger. You remember the Pharisees, the Pharisees are envious of Jesus, jealous of Jesus. As Jesus' popularity grows, as it swells, they become more and more spiteful, hateful towards Jesus. They hate what they saw, and they wanted it to stop. The thousands upon thousands who are claiming Jesus to be king, who are following Jesus... And so the Pharisees couldn't take it any longer, and they demand that Jesus rebuke his disciples. They demand that Jesus tell his disciples to stop. But Jesus responds by saying, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Nothing, in other words, could stop the crowning, the coronation, the worship of Christ. For if the people that were there didn't worship him, then Jesus said, even the stones, the stones of the very temple would cry out in praise and worship of Jesus. And rightfully so. All creation has been made to worship Jesus, to worship this king who is Lord over all things, including us. And really, a question that we must ask ourselves is, will we bow in worship of Jesus? Will we bow in worship of him as Lord over our life, as these people, as these disciples do themselves? Will we praise God for the reality of who Christ is and what he has done in surrender and follow him with our life? And so there's this festive celebration that is taking place, the crowning of Jesus as king. But then we come to another scene, another event, and this is where we find Jesus crying. There's this change 
of celebration to one of somberness, soberness, sadness. In verse 41, as he approached the city, or approached and saw the city, he wept for the city, the city of Jerusalem. And this word wept here, it's uh, translated as wept, is the strongest word in the Greek language for weeping. It can be translated, he wailed. He burst into sobbing as one commentator describes it. There's this moment in Jesus where he is deeply moved, saddened, and grieving over Jerusalem, over the people of God. But why? Why Why does all of a sudden he go from this joyous occasion to this grievous moment? This moment where he is deeply saddened. Why does he weep as he approaches the city of God, Jerusalem? Well, although this is where Jesus would go to end up dying to pay for the sin of humanity, for our sin, his sadness, his weeping was not for his own fate, his own death, but really for the fate of the city itself, for the fate of the people of Israel, for a lost opportunity. What's the lost opportunity? Well, listen to what Jesus says. If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. If you knew this day, what would bring peace? What is he referring to here? What would bring peace? Peace between what? Well, the peace that the Lord Jesus spoke of was not some political peace as many suppose. As many of the Jews, the Israelites, thought that he would bring peace with their enemies, that he would restore the nation of Israel, that he would get rid of the Roman government. They would become this powerhouse nation once again. There would be this social peace within Israel, but that is not the peace that Jesus is referring to here. Rather, he is speaking about a different peace, the peace with God. See, all of humanity is at odds with God. There's a strife between God and those whom he has created. And the strife is not because of God, but because of humanity, because of our sinning against God himself, that we have wronged God, we have broken the law, the rule of God, that we have lied, that we have become jealous, we have been envious, greedy, covetous, hateful people, that we have done many, many things that are wrong or sinful before God. And so there is this strife between man and God. There is not peace, but there is separation. That relationship has been broken between man and God since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, of Adam and Eve. And what Jesus came to do is restore this relationship to bring peace, to bring wholeness between us and God. For Jesus is that. He is the Prince of Peace. And see, this is what riding in on the donkey was supposed to signify this was what they were supposed to grasp and understand. See, he was coming to bring peace. He was not coming as a conquering warrior or general. For if he was coming as a conquering warrior or general, he would have been riding in on a horse. For when kings came into cities in times of war to conquer a city, they rode a mighty war horse. But when they rode a donkey into a city, it was because they were coming in peace. And Jesus wasn't just coming in peace, but he was coming to bring peace. But then something happened. According to Jesus, they missed it. He says in verse 42, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? If you knew, saying that they didn't know. And this is a turning point for the Jewish people. See, their leaders had rejected Jesus by and large. 
And most of the people followed their leaders, and so they had rejected Jesus. Yet, if they had known Jesus and his work as Messiah, they would have been spared from the judgment to come. Notice that what Jesus says here in verse 43, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. Referring probably to the temple because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. They missed something. They missed God. They missed who Jesus was and why he came. They rejected him as ultimately the Messiah, the one who had come to bring about peace and reconciliation between God and them. And there was a result, as a result, there was a judgment that they would face. Destruction would come upon the city of Jerusalem, the temple of God. In fact, in AD 70, the Romans occupied and destroyed Jerusalem along with the temple. No stone was left on another. Essentially, the temple, the city was ruined. And so Jesus is entering into the city of God, the Prince of Peace, approaching the city of peace, for what, that's what Jerusalem means, and he is weeping and mourning and wailing because of the destruction that would come to the city, because of the lost opportunity of the people, because they did not recognize and embrace him for who he was. I think it's important here to just stop and notice for a moment that in the midst of Jesus speaking of judgment, that we see him weeping, and it shows the heart of God how even when judgment must be pronounced, it's not done with joy and gladness, but there's a sadness, there's a soberness, there's a weeping that is brought about the heart of God even when judgment is brought. You see, what could save them and spare them from this judgment was right in front of them, had lived amongst them for years demonstrating that he is in fact the Messiah. And yet, they missed him. They didn't recognize him. And as a result, there was a judgment that they would experience. And the same is true for us. Christ has come into the world to bring about peace and reconciliation between us and God. And as human beings, we spend so much time looking for, searching for something to bring us peace, to bring contentment to our soul, to remove the guilt in our life from the sin that we have committed. And we will run to all kinds of things. Relationships, jobs, experiences, money, power, whatever it might be to find wholeness, to find peace, to bring contentment to us when the one thing that we need, the only thing that will actually satisfy us and make us whole is the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the one who came and died and he bore our sin in his body. He died the death that you and I deserve so that we might be reconciled to God. He was separated from the Father God so that we would not be separated from God for all of eternity, but rather we could live with God. And if we fail to recognize Christ, there will be a day of judgment for us, 
that all of eternity, this judgment just points to the greater judgment that will ultimately come where every human being stands before God to give an account for their life. And if we are not in Christ, we will experience the wrath of God poured out on us for our sin against a holy, righteous God. And we will be separated from him for all of eternity. But the truth and the message of the gospel is that Jesus came to die in your place, to pay for your sin, to bring peace into your life, peace between you and God. And the question is, think about it, is will you, will you repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Will you? Will you surrender to him? Will you embrace him or will you miss him and reject him? Well, soon after Jesus enters Jerusalem and there's this moment of weeping and wailing at the ultimate rejection of him by the people of God, then Jesus does something. He confronts, this is event number three, it's now the Tuesday of Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life on earth. The triumphal entry happens, this coronation of Jesus, he's presented as the king of Israel. There's millions of people in Jerusalem and he approaches the temple. The celebration has ended and Jesus arrived at the temple, the house of God. And in verse 45, we find something startling take place. He says, he went into the temple and he began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written in my house, or written my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This would have been a shocking event for the Jews. They had just celebrated him as king, although I don't know how many of them understood what they were doing. You know, they saw all the miracles is what Luke tells us, but it seems that they don't really understand and really embrace who he is, especially by the end of his life. Those, many of those disciples have, are gone and scattered. And he comes into the temple and they're surrounded, surrounding him and they see him. And upon the triumphal entry, they're anticipating and expecting Jesus to confront the Roman empire, to assault the Romans, to kick them out. The Romans who have oppressed them. Year after year after year, he expects them to throw out the Romans, not throw out the people who are in the temple, not to assault the doings in the temple, which was the heart of Judaism and the soul of the nation. And without any context, it's, I think, quite shocking to us as well. I don't know about you, but when you read this, I think oftentimes as Christians, we don't know what to do or to make of what's going on here with Jesus. It's like, did Jesus just snap and lose his mind? Like he just, all of a sudden, he just, just went crazy and just started, you know, lost control and just threw all these people out, flipped all these tables. Well, no, that's not what's happening. So what is happening? What is going on as Jesus approaches the temple, as he enters the temple? Well, number one is this, is Jesus was angered by sin. He's angered by sin. Well, what was the sin? Well, he makes this statement, or Luke makes a statement. He went to the temple, began to throw out those who were selling. In Jesus' day, merchants had set up shop in the temple, particularly in the courtyard of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles, the other nations, non-Jews, could come to the temple during Passover, during certain feast days, to worship God, to pray to God. And of these merchants, there's two really groups of people. There's the money changers and the animal sellers. And the money changers were there because once a year, every male Jew had to pay a temple tax. 
So a month before Passover, these booths were set up all around towns and villages where that temple tax could be paid. But by, by far, and lo- or far and large, the, most of the people actually pay the tax once they got to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And in Palestine, there's all kinds of currency that was in circulation. Roman currency, Greek currency, Syrian currency. and All that currency was uh, equally valid for ordinary just purchases, ordinary means of life. But the temple tax had to be paid with a specific currency. They had to use either half shekels or full ordinary Galilean shekels. And this is where the money changers came in. It's like, you know, when you get off an airplane into a different country, there's the place there where you can change the currency. You have American dollars to change into whatever uh, currency they're using in that country. This is what's happening there. But what was happening is these money changers, in order to change your currency, they would charge excessively high rates. You know, it's like someone going to get a, a payday loan or whatnot. They need a loan before they uh, get their check, and they have to pay it back, but the percentage rate is like 390% or even more. I mean, it's just absurd. So what they're doing is they're taking advantage of these people who don't have the right currency, charging excessive rates, making money. And then there's the animal sellers. See, people came from all over Palestine for these different feast days, one being the Passover, and they had to offer certain animals as sacrifices for these feasts. And it was inconvenient to to travel with this livestock, especially if you're coming from a long ways away, days away. And so they would just wait until they got to the temple to purchase the appropriate animal uh, for the specific sacrifice. And so the religious officials took advantage of this. And what they were doing is they were selling different animals in the temple that could be used for sacrifices. But these animals were charging, they were charging exorbitant fees for these animals, almost in some cases 20 times more than what you could normally purchase one for. In fact, this had become known as the Bazaar of Annas. And Annas was a greedy high priest. He was the first priest that Jesus was taken to, or the first trial after Jesus' arrest. And so you have these merchants who are working in cahoots with these priests, and they're cheating the visitors who are coming to Jerusalem, forcing them to purchase these approved sacrificial animals, and then currencies at high prices. And in the process, they're becoming extremely wealthy. What's going on? What's at stake? Well, Pastor John MacArthur, he writes this. All of this had combined to turn the temple of God into a noisy, smelly stockyard. The worshipful atmosphere that was appropriate for the temple, the symbol of God's presence was missing. Instead of being a place of sacred reverence and adoration, it had become a cacophony of abusive commerce and extortion. The sound of praise and prayers had been replaced by the bawling of oxen, the bleeding of sheep, the cooing of doves, and the loud haggling of merchants and their customers. That what was at stake is the genuine, authentic worship of God. I mean, imagine if what was happening in our auditorium here is there's people all around the room selling different things, and there's people haggling over prices, all this commotion going on here. Could you come and be undistracted in your worship of God? No. And it wasn't just simply that they were distracted, but they were being abused and extorted that these religious leaders were using God to make money off of these people who had come from all over to worship God. 
And see, the temple of God was to be this place where people come and worship the Lord. And in Isaiah, we see picture after picture after picture where he shows us that the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations, would come together along with the Jews to worship, to acknowledge Yahweh God. But at this point in time, that could not take place. Because in first century AD, the temple, this outer courtyard area, had been turned into a marketplace, as Jesus says, into a den of thieves, where people were being robbed, being used and abused in the name of God. Where people would come and they could not truly worship and honor and seek God. They were being exploited. And Jesus' ministry focused so much on the spiritual matters that his concern again and again was that the true God be worshipped in the true appropriate manner that's prescribed by his word, that people could come unhindered to worship God. But the worship of God in the temple was being disrupted and distorted and it enraged Christ that the leaders of Israel were greedy men using their position using the temple as a way to make profit. In Christ, there's this holy anger in his soul, this righteous anger that comes about when another person is abused or unfairly treated, when the name of God is being used to profit. You know, in your life, are you ever, do you ever find yourself angered at sin, enraged? By sin, angered at those who profit off the peddling of the gospel, the distorting of the word of God for their own greedy gain. I mean, it's no secret that one of the best ways to make lots of money is through religion. One of the best ways to make lots of money is just using religion. Many, many people become extremely wealthy through religion. Now, oftentimes we think if you become a pastor or you go on staff at church, you're going to be really poor. And that can be true or whatever in some cases in many parts of the world. But at least in our context, you can go into pastorate and you can become extremely wealthy. In our country, the prosperity gospel is alive and well. The idea that if you just sow seeds, give money to certain individuals, that God will bless you with health and wealth, with prosperity. And those who preach that gospel, many of them are extremely wealthy. One of those being Kenneth Copeland. He's worth $760 million. Has multiple of his own private jets to fly around the world. Because, of course, if Jesus was alive, he would have a jet to get around the world to preach the gospel. I've watched people, I've known people who have very little. I remember one guy, one situation, he's living in this apartment, run-down apartment, could barely pay his rent with his son, and he's giving money month after month after month to these ministries in hopes, buying into this idea that if he gives to these ministries, that God will make him wealthy, that God will give him riches. And I remember thinking, that is just so crazy. That many people in our country and around the world are abused, being used by those who claim to be preaching the word of God. I mean, I just think about the sexual sin that is taking place in churches around our city, around the, the country. That in the name of God, 
We're telling people that they can live in ways that are completely immoral, contrary to the Word of God. I don't know if you remember last week, but just the, the quote, celebration, pride fest that was down here. I walked up to grab some uh, coffee between services, and they're setting up for a church service that, in the name of God, proclaiming, saying, how living in sexual deviancy and sin and immorality is okay. And not just okay, it should be celebrated. That should be, bring anger. That also should bring sadness. There's many multiple emotions. Well, this past week I was in Anaheim, California for the SBC annual meeting. And, and if you followed anything about what's going on, and the abuse that's taking place, the sexual abuse that's happened in churches that's been covered up for decades of women and children. And there just should be this, there's this anger. When you think about it and you, you see what has happened and the many of people who have been used and abused, that people who are to be trusted, pastors, those on staff who have positions, they're leaders in the church taking advantage of the flock. I mean, that should bring a real anger and even sadness to our soul. Do you ever feel this just rage and anger inside of you when you see sin? Brothers and sisters, I hope you do. I hope there is an anger. If, there, if not, there's something wrong when we see the abuses that are taking place in the name of God by those who are to be bringing about the word of God, to be trusted, those who claim Christ. There should be an anger. To be like our Lord in part is to become angry at sin. It's to become angry when people are used and abused, when the name of God and the gospel is distorted and used for profit. Jesus was angered. He was angered at the degrading of the temple, the house of God, the false worship that was taking place, the exploitation of those who came to gather to worship God. And so what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus confronted the sin. In verse 45, he went into the temple and began throwing out those who were selling. Again, the temple is the place where people were to come to commune with God, to pray to God in one sense, which is the essence of worship. But this could no longer happen. This was no longer the case. But Jesus didn't stand by or stand still and just look at this and see what was happening and just kind of leave it alone. But at certain points in times, he acted. Now, Luke gives us the least amount of information, whereas Matthew and Mark and John give us more information. In John chapter 2, which many commentators believe was a second time or the first of two times in which Jesus cleansed the temple, this is what we're told that Jesus was doing. He goes in the temple, he finds all of this selling going on. And he says, after making a whip out of cords in verse 15, he drove everyone out of the temple with their, uh, their sheep and oxen. He po- also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. I mean, can you imagine the scene? Jesus walks in and he begins to physically throw people out. 
He has this whip that he's made and he's driving everyone out of the temple, flipping over the money changers' tables, pouring out their coins. Coins are rolling across the floor, stopping all the flow of goods that are being halted through the temple or transported through the temple. I mean, can you imagine that scene? It puts Jesus in a different light. That Jesus confronted the sin that was taking place. Many of us have this image of Jesus of just being just gentle and lowly, and he is. But there's also this fierceness within Christ. This righteous anger within Christ. That comes out when sin, particularly in the house of God, is taking place. And brothers and sisters, there are times when we must confront sin. And there's sometimes when we must confront sin with a real sternness and seriousness and strength. And I think from this passage, there's at least three things we can gain when we, we think about confronting sin or how we should confront sin. There's many things I would like to say. I just feel like I need to say at least these three things this morning. First is this, is that when we think about confronting sin, it's done with his word. Do you notice Jesus here? Verse 46, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah, this is what the house of God is to be, a house of prayer, a place of worship of God. But what have you done with it? The same rebuke in the Old Testament from Jeremiah. What have you done? You've turned into a den of thieves, abuse, exploitation. There was the word of God that drove Christ. It's the word of God that d- determines what the standard of life is. What is right and wrong? What is moral and immoral? What is sin and what is not? It's not the culture. It's not our own ideas. Truth does not live within us, but truth is found in the word of God, in God himself. And God is the standard of what is right and wrong. And therefore, when there is sin, there are times when we must confront that sin. Number two is with wisdom, with his wisdom. There are times we must confront sin. We must know when to do so. And I think Jesus here, he is calculated. I think about in John when he says he's making a whip out of cords It's not like that whip just got strung together, but it took some time to make that whip. That Jesus is calculating, and obviously more than likely he is praying. That this is a moment of control, not a lack of self-control. Jesus does not lose control here when he is driving around the temple. He is in control. He is calculated. He is operating within the wisdom, knowledge of God. And we know that Jesus did not always respond this way towards sin. This, is, this was not how he always dealt with sin, with this type of strength. But sometimes when there is severe sin going on, severe confrontation, or we must confront that sin with real strength. A uh, number of months ago, I was in a parking lot, a little bit different context, not the temple, not in the church, but in a parking lot. I was at Valley West Mall, and I was with another brother. We were grabbing lunch, and we were just leaving, and we were standing in the parking lot talking, and um, as we're standing there, he's here, and I'm looking this way, and I see this uh, parents, these parents, mom and dad, they're leaving, and they're just, dad is just yelling at his daughter. Uh, she wouldn't listen. I don't know if you ever had that experience as a parent, your child not listening. Wasn't listening, and he just had lost it. And he's holding her up, and he's just wailing on her. And he's trying to get her into, the, into his truck. 
and I'm watching this going on, I'm kind of like, is this like actually, you know, happening right now? I'm like, what in the world should I do? You know, do I just kind of like turn a blind eye and look at my friend and just ignore the evil that's taking place? And I just like, okay, Lord, what, what do I do? I don't know. And I uh, just felt very convicted. I got to go stop what's happening. And so I, I walked over, or kind of quickly moved across the parking lot, and I started yelling at this father. Now, I wasn't yelling obscenities. I wasn't like yelling. I was yelling at him to stop. And I got up to his vehicle, and he's looking at me, and you know, he knows. I can see in his face and his wife's face like what they're doing. Uh, this is not good. I said, I said, you need to stop. And I said, I understand. I have six kids. I get it. Life can be really hard. They don't listen very well sometimes. But this is not the way to deal with this. And they're trying to say, well, she's not I said, I get she's not listening. But you're not going to help her listen. You need to stop. And I yelled at him, thinking this is the way I need to match what's happening. Now, I didn't continue to yell at him, but I yelled at him to get his attention to stop. And then I confronted him. And, you know, they got in the truck and quickly drive, drove away. And so I took a picture of the license plate, which he promptly freaked out on me for taking a picture. And then I looked at the picture and realized, uh, it's a new car. There's no license plate, <laughs> unfortunately. But I think there are times where we have to confront sin. And I don't know what all those times are and exactly what that always looks like. I don't think that Jesus is saying here what you should do is you should just go and you should flip tables and you should you know, tee off on people. That, that's not the point. Because Jesus is calculated and he is God and sometimes we need to be more careful about our own anger than Christ. Jesus is perfect, we are not. We want to make sure that we're in the spirit of God as we move towards the confronting of sin. But brothers and sisters, there needs to be times when we confront sin. And we need to confront sin this way, or what drives Christ is with his heart. What motivated Jesus in this moment, this instant? Well, I think it's found here in John 2, 17, and his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What consumed Christ? Jesus was zealous, or he had this ardent concern, enthusiasm, this passion, this earnest concern for the things of God. He had an earnest concern for the reverence and honor of his father, that he would not tolerate the dishonoring of his father, God, that he would, not just, he would not tolerate the sin that was taking place in the temple that was stopping people from coming to worship God, that was using people to abuse them as they came to try to worship God. That Jesus drove out these merchants in the temple because he was zealous and passionate about the house of his father, God, that he would not tolerate the sin and oftentimes we tolerate sin. We tolerate the dishonoring of God's name because we are afraid. We're consumed with fear. We're afraid of what people might think of us. We're afraid of what someone might do to us. We're afraid oftentimes just to offend. We live in a culture where like the golden rules, if you're gonna offend somebody, just don't do it. 
you need to be sensitive to everybody's little nuance and things and whatever it is in their life. I'm not saying there's never a place to be sensitive to people, but so oftentimes what we're driven by is we just don't want to be offensive. But the word of God by nature at times when you're confronted with truth and you're in sin, it is or it can be offensive. Now, this is not a license for us to be offensive in the way we go about confronting sin. But we should be more concerned with the things of God than even our own self, how we might appear, how others might think of us, what someone, how someone may feel as we talk to them. Because Jesus, Jesus here, he is a man who is after, who is passionate about the honor and worship of his Father. And he confronted sin in the temple for the glory of God and the good of others. That what was best for the people in the temple is that those who were distorting the worship of God, those who were exploiting those who came to worship God, would be dealt with. They would be rebuked and corrected so the nations could gather to genuinely worship the Lord. This was an act of love, out of love for God and love for others that Jesus confronted sin. And again, there are times when we must confront sin. We must call people to repent of their sin. And that starts with us. In our own homes, in our own lives, in our own families, in our own church. Of course, the culture is living in sin. Of course, there's all kinds of uh, heinous ways of living out in the world, in the culture. That's to be expected, but not so in the house of God. That we are to be a people who are holy, living upright lives, so that we will continue to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, that we would not become a stumbling block to the world around us from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are times, appropriate times, for us to confront sin that is taking place amongst ourselves in our own lives. Well, as we close, I just have one just, I guess, point of application as we end our time here this morning. And simply is this, is just worship Jesus as king. I think when so much of the threat in all this is the worship of Christ, that he's entering into the city of Jerusalem, that he is the king, he is the Messiah, he enters into his temple, the temple of God, where God is to be worshipped. And we don't want to be like the Jews who miss Jesus. We don't want to be like the Jews who perverted the worship of Jesus. We don't want to be hypocritical in our worship where our lips are saying one thing, but our hearts are from God. But rather, we want to be a people who genuinely worship the Lord, where our whole life is given to him, where we're here gathering and praising and singing to God from a heart that is surrendered to God. And that we go out from here into our lives, living lives that are honoring and pleasing to the Lord. That Jesus is worthy of our life and worship. He is the king that God has sent. He is the one who has come to redeem us. Lamb of God, the one who will come again, who will set up his kingdom, who will rule and reign forever. May we just bow, may we live our life and surrender to him. Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your grace to do that. We ask for your grace to walk in obedience to you, Jesus, to love and serve you. God, have a, a genuine heart, a heart that is genuinely longing to know you, to make you known. 
God, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you came to bring, us, to bring peace between us and your Father, to reconcile us to yourself. And we just ask God for grace to love you and follow you more and more each day. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.